We are in part 13 of our Called by God series, line by line through the book of 1 Timothy. And I entitled today's message, Caring on Purpose. Caring on Purpose. That everything that we do in this year of purpose is focused on what does God want us to do and how do we do it intentionally? How do we do it in a very focused manner? And how we love on other people, how we care for other people needs to have structure to it. Y'all familiar with the concept of boundaries? Yes? Boundaries. I talk about it a lot from the stage because that's an area that Christians tend to wrestle with a lot. We sometimes fall into the trap that being Christian means always being nice and doing everything people want us to do. Sometimes that crosses over into what's called enabling. Sometimes we as Christians get a little bit into the trap of codependence, which means we want to be the savior of everyone and we don't like them to be under pressure. So we want to give them everything to make sure they don't have discomfort. I'm one of those personalities. I'm, I'm not very, I know as much as I'm irritating to you and agitating to you, that's totally on purpose. But here's the funny thing. Um, I have no problem shoving you off the cliff, but once you're off, I feel really bad. And so I'm very, very soft-hearted. Anyway, that in, in my life, I have a hard time seeing people in pain. I always want to alleviate the pain. And yet what Jesus demonstrated was something more powerful than that. His love goes beyond either being a doormat or being an enabler. I, I have certain struggles in doing what Jesus does, even though he's my hero, in certain areas. For example, I could not have done the Lazarus thing. Y'all understand the Lazarus thing? Jesus' best friend gets sick and he stays and lets him die. Like that whole tension and he comes into town and, and Lazarus' sisters who are also his best friends, they're blaming him. And I mean, the horror on that household, Jesus allowed it to hit. Now he was gonna do it for the glory of God and he was gonna raise him back up to life. But the point was he let the tension remain because there was a bigger issue at hand. What I'm trying to say is sometimes we need to give, and clearly I'm preaching to the choir, right? I mean, really? Two days, you ended up raising $100,000 for fire relief? Come on, that's craziness. So you're very, very generous, and sometimes we need to dig in and get it done. But sometimes the best way to love somebody is not to do anything at all. Why? The fill in the blank is on the sheet in front of you. It is this. The best type of love has boundaries. The best type of love has boundaries. Enabling isn't loving. I know that there's sometimes people in our lives that are so toxic or unhealthy or they're doing things that are hurtful and damaging and they need to be called on their actions. There needs to be some walls there needs to be some pushback and in the same way there also needs to be some organization to how we love people that is true for the church as well as your own personal lives the church would love to be able to do everything for everybody it simply cannot nor should it our job is not to alleviate discomfort our job is to minister to those who are hurting there's a big difference ministry and enablement are not the same thing why does this matter? Because of what Paul is about, about to tell Timothy in this book. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. If you remember, Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and said, we got to get the bad guys out of this church. We've got to get good guys in place. 
And you got to bring correction to a whole bunch of people because how it got so messy in the first place is people dropped the ball. So I need you to bring correction to the church. But when you do so, I need you to do so in a certain fashion because we're family and that's where we begin. First Timothy chapter five, verse one, it says this, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Very simply, it means this. When you bring correction, we act according to our family rules. We are in the house of God. We are the family of God. All of us have the same dad. That means we are all siblings. Therefore, we treat each other with healthy, functional, good rules. That means that we watch over each other and we give each other mutual respect. We do not talk condescendingly to one another, whether you're in leadership or not. For me to bring correction, that is part of what my job is. I bring correction to the body of Christ. But what I cannot do and I should be held accountable for is I'm not allowed to get nasty about it. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not allowed to be belittling or degrading. I'm allowed to call things and say that cannot happen in the house of God. This will not happen in our family group, but the manner in which I do it must always be done in love and respect. Once again, true love is strong. It's powerful. We don't just let everything go. You got to bring in some correction. All right, we got that. How do we handle it? We treat them like older men than you. You would treat as fathers Older women than you, you would treat as mothers, which means that you give them respect and honor. It is a Christian ethic to treat people with honor and respect. We are not a disrespectful people. We should never be a disrespectful people. If we have disagreement, we disagree respectfully. We do not throw a tantrum. We do not do any of the belittling. We do not personally attack. That is not how Christians handle things. We're always respectful. Let's say that they're your age or younger. Then you treat them with equality. You treat them with a certain level of still not being condescending. You still look and say, listen, we're all in this together. The only reason I'm bringing correction to you is because God said it's not right. I'm not judging you. I'm judging your behavior. And I'm telling you it's not okay. If it's younger women, they never should ever have to think that you're going to abuse your authority and act towards them in a creepy fashion. He said, when you correct them, you bring in all purity at all times you watch over and treat them right. That's what he said. And he goes, now, in terms of how we're gonna help people as a church, how we're going to care, we have some heavy boundaries. Let's talk about them. Pick it up in verse three. I'll read through verse seven. It says this, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Couple things. Right off the bat, let's be honest, if you were reading this in your own devotional time, you go, well, that's not for me. And you just keep moving on, right? Ain't got nothing there. You're gonna miss a lot of gold. 
here's what you're going to miss. Let me give you the background and the context of all this. Let's talk about God's heart for widows. It is extreme. How do we know? Because he even designed the nation of Israel with rules to protect widows and orphans. Indeed, he is so passionate about widows and orphans, it is bled into the church today to where Bridgeway has a very soft heart towards single moms, widows, and you'll notice that most all of our global activity has to do with helping children. We watch out for those that are vulnerable. That's the heart of Jesus. Yes? Okay. But God's interest towards the widows is rather unique. Uh, For example, one of the whole entire books of the Old Testament is about caring for widows, is it not? That's the book of Ruth. Naomi was a widow. Ruth was a widow. All of a sudden, God organizes this super cool guy named Boaz, who's like a knight in shining armor. He comes in and rescues everybody. Why? That's the heart of God. Even with his prophets, you think about the guys that did crazy miracles, guys like Elijah and Elisha. They even did miracles for widows. Do you remember that? One widow, she was picking up the last sticks and everything for her last meal. God sent a widow in and he did a radical miracle where her oil never stopped flowing. Do you remember this? God cares for widows the same way with Jesus. Not only is Tabitha Dorcas a widow raised back to life, but if you remember, Jesus was walking through a town in Nain, a town called Nain, and he walks through and there's a funeral procession and it's a widow weeping because her only son, the only one that would care for her, the only one left in her life was dead on the pallet that they were carrying. It says because of compassion, Jesus stopped the whole funeral procession, had him lower it down and raise the man back to life. God will do radical, crazy stuff to defend his daughters. See what I'm saying? As a matter of fact, James, the brother of Jesus said this in chapter one, verse 27, you really want to know the heart of Christianity, here we go. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think sometimes we miss how Jesus felt about his parents. I think sometimes we only focus on a couple stories and miss the underlying truth. For example, we don't have many stories about Jesus as a kid, do we? We only really got one. He's 12 years old. What happens? He's traveling with his family in a caravan. They go to Jerusalem. He bails out without telling them, hangs out in the temple. The parents are crazy looking for him everywhere, scared out of their minds for three days. Then they find him in the temple. What was his response? Where else would I be? That's not a good response. Kids, don't follow that. And so we kind of go, oh, that was kind of disrespectful to your parents. It actually says, and he was obedient to his parents. But here's the other thing. All of a sudden, he's now an adult man. His mom didn't quite know what he was, who he was. His brothers for sure didn't know who he was. So they thought he was kind of working himself to death and being pulled in a bunch of different ways. So they thought he was out of his mind. They come to get him. And somebody in the crowd says, hey, your, mo- your mother and brothers are here to come get you. Do you remember this? What did he say? I'm sorry, who? My mother and brothers are right here. This is my family. And you're like, oh, that was so disrespectful, right? Your mom's asking for her, for you. I think he did those things for a reason. There's a couple things in context, but outside of that context, here's my guess. I think he knew what we as people were going to do with Mary after he was gone. 
I think he was putting a proper check on the idea of venerating Mary to being something more than human. I think he was saying, listen, guys, here's how I feel about my mom, Mary. She's the coolest. That's why we picked her. So if you want to talk about why a wonderful woman of God, she's it. But if you want to try to make her deity, you need to back off. There is only one God and she ain't it. So I think he made it very clear on that. But if you want to know his heart for his mom, look at how he handles her in desperation. This is the most incredible story. Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. Everything that he tried to avoid in the garden of Gethsemane while sweating like great drops of blood is happening to him. He is in agony. He's slowly dying. He's being crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. He is facing the place where he is going to be separated from the father. In all of that intensity, he muscles up some energy and calls John to the foot of the cross. Do you remember this? Because John was further away. Only the women were at the foot of the cross. They were the only ones allowed to be there. They were the only ones that showed up. John was a little further away. On that cross, he said, hey, John, come here for a second. John was his best friend and his youngest friend. Is that important? It really is. All the other disciples were going to get martyred, but not John. Why? Listen to this. Hey, John, come here for a second. I need you to take care of mom. Listen, she doesn't have me anymore. I'm the oldest boy. I was always the one that protected her. And my brothers do not yet know what's going on. You know, John. And I'm going to watch over you, make sure you can watch over her. Okay. But are you going to take care of her for me? Yes, sir. All right. We're good. And then Jesus dies there on the cross. He was watching over his mom. Is he, or is he not demonstrating an incredible heart towards the widow? Joseph's gone. She's a widow. All right, let's move on. What is a new world widow, right? Because here's the thing we say, what do you mean truly a widow? I think we can tell if her husband dies, she's a widow. No, hold on. The word actually means that a woman has lost her husband, been robbed of her husband, suffered the loss of her husband or left alone. That word is very open. Why is that important? Because to be a widow in that century was not only to have your husband die, but let's say you dedicated your life to Jesus and you never got married in the first place and now you have no one to care for you because everyone's gone. Let's say, for example, you were abandoned by your husband. You were either divorced or when you got saved, he pushed you out the door. Let's say that your husband is in prison. Let's say, right, we could go all these scenarios. Those all apply. But they have to be a certain type of widow. The danger of widows in the ancient world was that everything was male headship. You went from under your dad's authority to your husband's authority. You did not have any right to have a job on your own. For us, maybe in modern day, and I do not believe that even American women have been fully empowered. I do not believe that that women today are receiving equality as they should. I I don't think that, but I think we are light years beyond the idea of women being property. So sometimes it's hard in our modern day mindset to say, come on, lady, you don't need a guy, right? Just do it yourself. You don't need a man in your life. Problem is when society blocks you and you're not allowed to have any job but be a prostitute, that's pretty brutal. 
You don't have any choice. The only business you can run is out of your home. What if you don't have a home? You can only have that home if you're independently wealthy or if you have a husband. If you have a dad, you have no options. It is only when a woman is a widow is she ever out from under a husband. And the problem is society just lets her die. So what do you do with this? That's when the church steps in. Ah, this is what we're going to be talking about. What type of widow? He's going to give, what, eight qualifications? You're going to find they're pretty stringent. And really who he's looking for is Anna from the New Testament. Let me just read this to you. Luke chapter 2, verse 36 through 38. If you remember when Jesus was eight years old, he was brought into the temple to be circumcised. And this one older guy named Simeon rolls up and he does this prophecy about him. And then Anna shows up, says this. And there was a prophetess named Anna. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, meaning... She got married. They were married for seven years. Then he died. Then as a widow, she was 84. So she's been single the entire time, right? Since, she, since that time that he passed away. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour to Jesus's family, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is a fully sold out, all in woman for God. She is a widow. Remember the other time that Jesus took him into the temple and saw the widow who gave the last of what she had? God was always watching widows. What? He's a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. Just watch his covering. It's incredible. He said, you know who I'm looking for is people like Anna. Not women that are just going, you know what? I can do whatever I want. I'm going to live a selfish life. He's like, no, 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 no. This woman has my heart. I need her protected. I need her cared for. And then he said, he said, we need to honor our parents and grandparents because they cared for us. We need to care for them in return. And this is where some of us have a challenge because we say, uh, my parents were not awesome. They did not care for me. They did not provide for me. Actually, I struggled and I ended up being farmed out to all kinds of stuff. I was in the foster system. Let's say that was your story. Okay, then you do not love them in return. You simply love them as a Christian. What does that mean? The agape of God says we love from our heart outward. We do not love in return. We love because we are filled up with God. So we have more to give regardless of whatever comes back to us. So why do we honor and care for our parents? Because God gave us the ability to, not because they deserve it. If we waited to love unless everyone deserved it, we would not be loving people. We don't love because of who they are. We love because of who we are. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to get into that a little bit more. But he said, a self-indulgent widow is dead even while she lives meaning she's disconnected from the church. She's disconnected from God. She's just doing her own thing. That's not how we need to be living. All right, let's pick it up in eight. This is where it gets clear and a little in our face. Yeah. Verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's clear, right? Worse than an unbeliever. Why would he say that? Well, Here we go. Let's talk about it. 
Remember I mentioned to you that we all have individual responsibilities and mission fields that start small and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Here's the concentric circles like a target. The bullseye is your walk with God. Are you managing your walk with God where you have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's your first responsibility. Nothing can happen without that. Then if God allows you or calls you, some of us get married. That your next mission field is marriage. That your spouse is cared for. If you have the blessing of having children, that's your next circle out. You care for your children. The next circle out is your extended family. So that would be your parents, your grandparents, stuff like that. The next circle out is the church. You care for the body of Christ. Then the final circle is the world. Everyone outside these walls. Those are the circles of responsibility. What's the problem? We tend to pick the one we like, focus there, and leave the rest behind. Unfortunately, many people and Christians are doing such a great job reaching out to the world, but their home lives are garbage. Their kids are neglected and nothing's going on. God's not going to bless that. He's not pleased with that. You need to handle your marriage first. You need to handle your kids first. Then you start doing other stuff, right? That's how it goes. That's the way that God will honor it. All right. But he said this, he said, if you'll be worse, if you don't take care of your household, you've denied the faith. Why? Because that's not how Christians act. And you're worse than an unbeliever. Why worse? Because in Greco-Roman law at the time, you had to care for your parents. That was a secular responsibility. There's a guy, an ancient Athenian lawyer, his name was Solon. He actually argued this into law. He said that children not only have the moral responsibility to care for their parents, they have a legal responsibility. And listen to this. He said, if children do not care for their parents, they should lose all civil rights. That's intense. Like, you don't care for them, you get nothing. You're done. Aristotle took it further. He said, children should rather starve if they don't take care of their parents. You care for them, then you get your food. That's how it works. Now, if that is society and the church has a lower bar, how does that make Jesus look? Y'all following me? How does that make Jesus look? Not really good. So you are worse than an unbeliever. The unbelievers are taking care of their family. Are you? That's his challenge. He said, all right, let's bounce back into how the church handles widows. Let's talk about these eight qualifications. Here we go. Verse 10. Let a widow be enrolled, taken on by the church. If she fulfills eight conditions, number one, she is not less than 60 years of age. Number two, having been the wife of one husband. Number three, having a good reputation for good works. Number four, if she has brought up children. Number five, if she has shown hospitality. Number six, if she has washed the feet of the saints. Number seven, if she has cared for the afflicted. And number eight, has devoted herself to every good work. Here's the first thing this tells me. The church has a social responsibility. Like, what do you mean? I mean, we are here to do stuff and help people that practically need help. Now, once again, y'all are very generous and you just helped out a ton. I get you get it, but not all of us in this room get it. 
we have a social responsibility. There's a bunch of stuff falling apart in our society because we're not doing our job. Well, you know, I think we should really just kind of hang out in church and navel gaze. And let's just basically talk about more ways that we can be cool with Jesus. Listen, I don't really like the activist thing. Listen, here's the reality. The church has been blessed to be a blessing to the world. Our job is to do social justice. Our job is to bring change into the world around us. Well, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus will come and burn it all up anyway. That's not on you. Your responsibility is to do what you can do. Your job is to give a cup of water to those that are thirsty. Your job is to give food to those that are hungry. Your job. Well, what if they don't get saved? I'll hand them a track. Listen, get them the food, right? Get them the food. And then we can start talking about Jesus, but you don't say, Hey, until you do this, I'm not going to give you the meal. That's not acceptable. Our job is to be a blessing regardless if they get saved. Our job is to love and bring change to our community. That's what we do. All right. In the area of widows, let's talk about this. Cause when I read this list, I'm out, right? Like has this, this woman will do this, 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 this. I don't know how many people are ever going to be on this list, but let's go through it. First of all, they need to be over 60. Why? Well, there's a couple things. There's three reasons why. Uh, at least number one, since they're beyond childbearing age, they're likely not going to be picked up to be married. Remember it was a male dominated society and having children was a big deal, mostly boys. So if they couldn't have children, they would be passed on. So they weren't going to get married. Now, let me just say this real quick. And this is a side note. You don't, you don't have to write this down, but it might be important. Uh, and that is, I rarely ever give you instructions on how to handle your personal life in terms of like family stuff. I allow you to parent the way you want to parent, but I think I'm going to overstep that bound for a moment. You ready? You ready? If you ladies are over 60, I think you need to stop having children. I did. I don't, I don't, you can write it down. I'm just saying, because I don't, at some point you got to mellow out. That's all I'm saying that if you're, if you're still childbearing past 60, there's some issues. Okay. So let's just calm it down after 60. There you go. Take that for what it's worth. All right. If indeed this woman is past childbearing age, the second thing is she is probably more frail, even if she has the means to take care of herself. Why? Because the life expectancy is way different than today. You are basically seeing a 65 year old life expectancy and they're already 60. What that means is it's not the 60 of today. The 60 of today is I'm going to start a new business. That's what 60 of today is. 60 of today is like going to the gym. And I mean, it's just ridiculous what 60 of today is because we have a whole different healthcare system and nutrition ideas and all these things. We have so many different things that build our bodies up, but back then your body would break down really quickly. And so these women were already having a hard time taking care of themselves. That's the second reason. The third reason is that in Greco-Roman worldview, 60 was the age of wisdom. That once you hit that threshold of 60, you were no longer a builder trying to build your life, you were able to pause and reflect on life and wisdom can soak into your life. Okay. So he's saying, listen, they got to be over 60. All right. What's the next one? They need to be the wife of one husband. That may or may not mean what you think it means. You're going, oh, well, she only had one dude. No, as a matter of fact, if she had a dude and he died, she's a widow. And then she marries again and that dude dies. She's still a widow. 
So she could still be on the list. So what does it mean? It means that you are faithful to your husband that you had, that you are the wife of one man, as opposed to being uh, promiscuous. That's actually what it means. Uh, next one, that she has brought up children. Well, that seems a little odd. Why does she have to have kids to be on the list? Because in my world, whether my own family, my extended family, or my friends here, we've really wrestled a lot with infertility. So not everybody gets to have kids. And so the idea that you would go, well, you're only going to get on the roll if you have kids, that seems a little weird, especially when almost all the patriarchs of Judaism had infertility problems. And this woman was barren, and this woman was barren, and this woman was barren. I mean, it was like craziness, right? So why would you put that in there? Because the woman didn't have to have her own children. Here's why. In the Roman era, the dad had all control over kids, power of life and death. When you would have a baby, the baby was presented to the dad. The dad would determine if the baby was going to stay or go. And so what would happen is if it was a girl, usually you'd discard it and throw it out. If it was a boy, you would keep it if the boy was perfectly formed. If there was any deformation, you would throw it out. And what that meant was there was a lot of abandoned children left to die. Now, some unscrupulous people would hang out there. They would grab the little girls, raise them as prostitutes. They would grab the little boys and they would raise them as slaves and they'd raise them as gladiators and all those different things. But there was a lot that people still didn't want. And some of the wealthy women or women that were able or women that didn't have children of their own would come in and scoop up the other babies and raise them as their own. What was the point in putting this on the list? Did she have a heart to care for others? That's what it meant. Or did she live her life only for her? That's the problem. Okay. Next one. It said, and she was hospitable. Hospitality matters because in the ancient world, it was dangerous to travel. And the only way people could stay safe was if you opened your home. To not open your home was to put people in danger. Okay, next one. She would wash the feet of the saints. What does that mean? Could mean that she literally did that, which was a slave's job, but it probably meant that she didn't walk around with an entitled attitude of saying, I don't do that, that's below me. She needed to be a humble enough woman that says, I'm a daughter of the king. Whatever my dad asked me to do, I do. It don't matter. Who am I? I'm just a woman. That type of humility God honors. It says that she had cared for the afflicted. Those that are persecuted, those that are hungry, those that are left all alone. Was she a caregiver? And then finally it says she was devoted to good works. Devoted to good works. Why does it have to say that? Because here's what's tempting. A woman lives all for herself, completely selfish, self-obsessed, turns 60, husband dies, wants to be on the list. And then they, she goes up to him and she's like, hey, I want to be on the list and I want to get on your little welfare program. And they said, well, what kind of life have you lived? Well, this one time I did this one thing for that one family, if you remember that. No, that ain't going to cut it. Devoted to good works means it was your lifestyle. Were you a person that lived to serve other people? then you get on the roll. Is this rather stringent? Oh yeah, it's super stringent. Why? Because they're not going to enable bad behavior. Love always has boundaries. The idea is not simply trying to give people stuff so they can be more selfish. The point was 
you live the right life and we will make sure that you're cared for. That was the point. That's what God was trying to honor. He was not interested in making things worse for people or encouraging toxicity. He had very stringent rules because the church is called to a higher thing than merely caring for someone's financial needs. It's important, but there's more they should be doing. And this is what Paul's getting to. Take a look at verse 11. In case, ladies, you were not offended enough, let's offend you more. (laughs) Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. You know, all those 59-year-olds, right? But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Whoa, that's insane. Besides that, if you support a woman, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. Not only idlers, they're gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. That's a great view of women, isn't it? A little stereotypical. Man, you give a woman any kind of opportunity to not have to work that day and whoop, she's gone, right? All she's going to need, 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 going around, right? You're like, Paul, that's kind of mean. What is wrong with you? All right, well, let's break it down because it may not say what you think it says. Here's the first one. He said, the main thing here is that if she gets on the roll, let's say her husband passes away. And in that moment, she is completely upended and lost. She is going to be afraid and she's going to want to run to the church and sign up for the rest of her life. What the church is saying is, hold on, hon, don't rush this. You need to allow God to move. You need to allow him to heal. You're not always going to feel like this, but she can't see anything else. I don't blame her, but the church blocks her and says, no, you don't get to get on the roll until you figure this stuff out. Right? Why? Because he said, they'll want to leave Christ. What does that mean? They'll want to marry. What's wrong with getting married? It's not getting married. How do I know that? Because his solution, what they should do is go get married. So it's not marriage. So what does it mean? Well, you got two options. Scholars are divided on this. One option is that it means that you're going to break a vow to the church in Christ. The second option is that you're going to marry a non-believer. Let me explain. When a widow would be enrolled, the church was basically taking on her whole lifestyle. They were paying for her to live. She basically came on staff, right? Because if you have a widow who has the time and bandwidth, you have gold. You have a prayer warrior. You have a wisdom warrior. You have a woman that can go out. And if she is this godly, she can change an entire city all by herself. So the church says, right on, you come in, we'll make an agreement. We'll pay your bills. You do all this stuff. And they had an agreement and they would invest into her and invest into her. But what if one day she just goes, you know what? I'm out. I'm going to go get married now. And everything they invested falls apart. Now, all of a sudden, you have people going off staff and it causes chaos and disruption. Is that what it means? Maybe. Here's what else it can mean. That she marries a non-believer. Why? Because when you finally heal up from the loss of your husband and you start to have that fear of what's going to happen to me and you start to have that longing of I want someone to focus on me. It's real tempting to grab a guy that is super nice or paying attention that isn't living for the Lord. That still is today. But here's the problem. In the ancient world, the man dictated the religion of the household. If you married a non-believing guy, you had to give up Jesus to go marry him. 
You don't get to bring Jesus into your household. Why? He already has a religion and it's not yours. You don't get to bring yours in. So that's how you would abandon the faith and incur the condemnation. Does that make sense? All right. Then he says this, they can't be idlers and busybodies and all that. Here's what his point was. We are here on this planet for a purpose. You don't just get to live however you want to live. As a matter of fact, you need to have a strong work ethic. You need to be responsible and you don't need to cause more drama. You need to mellow out drama. So let's be careful with the time that we have. Here's how strong Paul felt about it. Second Thessalonians 3, 11. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, don't let him eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. What was he trying to attack? There was a big thing in Roman culture that was rising up of independence and rebellion called the Roman woman. And it was, they were starting to get some strength and some independence in culture. And so they started having this attitude. We don't need men. We can use men. We can do whatever we want. Let's figure out a way to get independently wealthy. And then they would start hanging out with each other at their houses and causing problems. He was telling the church, don't get caught up in that garbage. Women, don't be a part of that. I know it's what culture does. I need you to not do what culture does. I need you to lock in, right? All right, so here's his answer. Picks it up in verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Ye, that's hardcore. Why? Because this is a small church. Everyone knew exactly who he was talking about. He just called him out. Closes with verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Here's how I want to close. Do you realize that church staff, what we mostly do is fill in the gaps for friends and family. That's mostly what we do. In other words, sometimes you go, you know what? I need to talk to somebody about the Lord and you have no one. So someone, a pastor meets with you, a worker meets with you. When in fact, if you had solid, healthy Christian family and friends around you, you wouldn't need us. The number one thing that the church should be doing is ministering to one another. Every one of you is equipped. You're over-equipped. You're the one that prays for one another. It doesn't need to go to the pastoral staff. You're the one that watches over each other's households. You're the friends. But we live in such a world that highlights isolation. Be independent, make enough money so you don't rely on anybody and stay in your own house and don't know your neighbors. That's pretty much our world. But that robs you from community. And you end up only having the church to fill in normal gaps. You know what would be beautiful? Is if we ministered to each other so much that we were full that the church staff could be released to do what we were actually called to do, which is take the healthy people, hire, and get outside these walls and impact the community. That's what we're supposed to be doing, but we can't. Our time is primarily spent being family and friends to those who don't have any. 
Y'all, support systems are so critical. All right, let's close it with this. When I'm talking about all this stuff, take care of your family, take care of your family, take care of your family, there are some of you that hurt every time I said that. Because you said, Pastor, you don't know my family. You don't know how hurtful my dad is. You don't know how hurtful my grandma is. You don't know how much toxicity is walking through that household. I had to slam the door and never see those people again because of what they did to my children. I understand that's reality. Here's what I'm going to ask of you. I'm going to say, listen, you're allowed to have boundaries. As a matter of fact, you're supposed to have boundaries. Your children don't need to suffer because you're trying to reach out to somebody else. You need to have boundaries. But here's the thing. I think the reason why it hurts so bad is is the Holy Spirit tapped you on the heart and said, this wound needs to be healed. Just because they're unhealthy doesn't mean you have to be unhealthy. So before you leave, here's what I'm going to pray for this prayer team. I'm going to pray that this prayer team is anointed to bring breakthrough in the area of family wounds. If you kept getting triggered every time I talked about it, that was God giving you an inclination. You got to get prayer up at the altar. I don't want you going home carrying anything you don't need to carry, right? We all have other burdens. We don't need this. Sometimes you go, it doesn't matter. The pieces are too shattered. Here's what I'm telling you. God knows how to put stuff together, but you've got to let him work on it. So today, come up. We're going to pray over the team and they're just going to pray over you. And as they do that, the Holy Spirit will start putting things together. Amen. Let me close in prayer and the altar is open. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Praise you, God, for being the one that knits together, the one that is the father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. Even though, Lord, you have done so many glorious things to fill our tank, God, we still have some pain points. We still have some terrible memories and some baggage of dysfunction. We still are wrestling through feeling not whole. And so, God, for all those that you tapped on the shoulder, would you bring healing here at the altar today? That, God, that you would begin to put together the pieces and super glue them back together. And then once it's all together, you put your hands around it and it becomes soft flesh again. Whole with no cracks, no deviations, no division, but it would be right and holy. God, would you take each one of our prayer team members, Holy Spirit, and anoint them for breakthrough. That God, it would be a divine appointment. That when we walk up there, it's not about the individual. It's about you rushing through that individual to begin to bring healing to our hearts. Because God, we need to be healthy. It's what you want. It's in your will. And so I'm just praying, Lord, that you would move upon us, that we might be able to be finally healed in the broken place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.